Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a year into the coronavirus pandemic, the once novel idea of working from home has begun to feel permanent, at least for some workers. But more remote work can mean less social interaction and collapsed boundaries between work and home life. It can also erode the vitality of urban centers and physical spaces that bring different groups of people together. We'll talk about how remote work has already begun to reshape workplaces, family dynamics, and communities. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For those of us lucky enough to have jobs that we could do from home during the pandemic, there's a lot to be grateful for. But it has brought big changes for workplaces, families, cities. And what would the impacts be if most remote workers stay remote? According to a study co-authored by Stanford economist Nicholas Bloom, between May and October of last year, half of all paid work hours in the U.S. were done at home. And Bloom thinks a significant number of people will continue to work from home even after the pandemic, as many employees have adapted now to the demands of remote work and employers have revised policies for more home-based workers. Nicholas Bloom is a professor of economics at Stanford University, a senior fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Lovely to be here. Thank you. I mentioned that statistic of half of all paid work hours provided at home. You've been studying the effects of working from home on individuals, workplaces, and communities well before the pandemic. Can you put in context for us the significance of a stat like that? Yes. I mean, that, that number is just quite incredible. I've been w working on working from home itself going back to 2010. In fact, standing there, I had a graduate student in my Stanford class that uh, had founded a large company, was taking time out, but their 
company wanted to do a large, an experiment working from home. So I've been looking at this for more than a decade. To give you a sense, before the pandemic, about 5% of working days were fully done at home. So roughly, you know, for the typical American, about one day a month. And then, as you mentioned, during the pandemic, that's gone up to more than 50%. So it's increased tenfold. And, you know, before the pandemic, it was doubling roughly every something like every eight years. So to go up tenfold is kind of like 30, 40 years of increase in the space of three months. It's just, you know, unprecedented. And you think there are signs that at this scale, or at least similar to this scale, working from home could be here to stay. Why? What are the signs? Well, just to tell you the background, I've been involved with uh, research at the University of Chicago and actually ITAM in Mexico, uh, running surveys on between two and a half to 5,000 working age Americans a month since back in May last year. And also, I must have talked to, you know, a couple of hundred firms, organizations, local cities, etc., about their plans. And what seems to be shaking out is that now most firms are saying, look, for those of you that can work from home, which is roughly half the population, and my guess is it's in the majority of your listeners, it tends to be people, say, with you know office jobs, university degrees, et cetera. For those of you that can work from home, you're mostly all working from home now. But post-pandemic, and the, you know, the dates I've heard from many firms to say after Labor Day, so later in the fall, we want you to come back into the office three days a week. Hmm. So, for example, Google just announced a couple of weeks ago what they called a 322 plan. And, you know, highly amusing that Google needed to mention the last two, the Saturday, Sunday, since <laughs> most people took that as holiday for sure. But the, the first three, two is pretty uh, important. They said, look, you're going to be coming in the office post-pandemic, let's say Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. You have all your meetings, your time together, you know, your lunch events, et cetera. But Wednesday, Friday, that's your time to work from home. And we encourage the entire team to work from home on those two days. What do employees like about it most? Let's talk about the pros of this and, and also even employers. Yeah, so for employees, you know, we ask people that the major benefit is, of course, saving on commute. So the average American is probably true for California as well. The average American spends about half an hour commuting uh, to work and back. So that's an extra hour a day. I mean, that's a an enormous amount of time you save. And then they like, you know, I, I'm actually sitting doing this interview at home. I'm in, I, to be honest, I'm in a tracksuit. Uh, I like a t-shirt and look, you know, jogging bottoms. They like the fact that I'm not shaved. You know, I haven't, I probably should have shaved this morning. Thankfully, this is radio, so no one can see how stubbly I am. But they like the fact, you know, you don't need to get dressed. You don't need to shave, uh, you know, you don't need, you know, do your hair, whatever it is. But it's just easy and convenient. Um, during the pandemic, the other thing that's important is for those people that have kids at home, you know, it's a kind of a blessing and a curse. The blessing mm. you get to see your kids more. The curse, of course, it's very hard to work. But so, the, you know, the third factor is also time with family. So that's from employees. From employers' perspective, we see in the survey data, and I saw this in the original randomized control trial I did back in 2010, that employees are actually more productive at home if uh, you let them work from home for a couple of days a week because it's quieter. They just overwhelmingly say they can concentrate, they can focus. Um, so actually, it's more productive for, for employers to have their employees at home. You've also warned, though, Nicholas Bloom, that this shift could be a, quote, ticking time bomb for inequality. Can you talk about the impacts on the other half of American workers in retail, restaurants, transportation, and what's worrying about a system that benefits one large class of employees over another? Yeah, there's, you know, there's a couple of kind of 
uh, dark sides of the working from home boom. So, you know, possibly the worst is the fact that it's a clear benefit. So I don't want to be ne too negative on it. We are in the survey, people that are allowed to work from home, they say two days a week after the pandemic, they said they'd value it at about the equivalent of an 8% pay increase. So just to put it in perspective, working from home two days a week is seen by the typical American as something like equivalent to a pension plan or a kind of mean healthcare plan, 8% of salary. So this is a really valuable benefit. Now, you, you then realize that it's actually typically, as you say, going to the educated higher earners and people that have earned less and in fact had a much tougher pandemic because they've had to go in uh, and risk infection or lost their jobs. And now post-pandemic, not seeing the kind of benefits that, you know, the better educated half are. So when I talk to firms, this issue comes up all the time. I remember talking to a uh, manager of a pharmaceutical company who was saying, look, it's really divisive because I have my senior managers and scientists that mostly are able to work from home. The pandemic hasn't been too bad for them. They're going to get this great perk post-pandemic that we're all happy about. But for the you know factory level workers and the people on the front line, it's been really tough. Some of them had to lay off because they literally can't do the jobs and the other them faced infection risk and they're just not getting any benefit post-pandemic. And mm -hmm. the general view has been from companies, if you can, to some extent, make good on that to say, look, for those of you that aren't getting to work from home post-pandemic, instead we'll maybe you know put your salaries up by a few percent to try and at least partially compensate. And as you touched on also with the complications of having children, it's not it's not like everybody who's working from home is equally effective. You have pointed out how some respondents don't have the kind of internet capacity necessary to do all the things that their job requires, or uh, that uh, they don't have the equipment or, or other forms of technology that might be needed. What's hard for the people, what, what are the disparities among remote workers? And what's hard for the people who struggled with having to do it? Yes. I mean, one is kids. Uh, you know, I feel terrible. My office door right now is locked. I have I have four kids. They, I mean, the older ones that are in high school are fine. My our youngest is in a elementary school, and she's super sweet. And it's hard for any parent to say no, but she's Zoom schooled, and it really, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. Uh, she keeps coming in to want to play, and it's very it's, it's sweet, but you know, as anyone knows with kids, it's hugely distracting. It's very hard on on calls. So kids is a huge issue, and around half of American. Half the U.S. workforce have kids 18 or under at home. So that's a massive thing. The other two things that are big are, do you have your own room, which is not your bedroom to work in? So before COVID, when I talked to companies, the rules used to be, look, if you're as an employee, you're going to work from home. You've got to have your own room. That's not your bedroom. You have exclusive access to. So they would say, you know, we, don't, we don't want people working from home in their bedroom. It's totally depressing and it's not effective. And we, you know, we're not going to be happy with you sharing it with your spouse or your flatmate or somebody. But under the pandemic, only 48% of people are in that situation. So most people are either sharing rooms or in their bedroom. Right. And then the third thing you know, mentioned is broadband. So here there's a, a little bit of confusion. So about, you know, more than 90% of Americans have reasonable internet access. So on the one hand, you think that's great. Most people have good internet, but it turns out that's not enough typically to maintain a Zoom call. So if you want to have a video call, which is what many jobs now require, if you're working from home, you've got to have better than reasonable internet access. You've got to basically have very high speed and close to broadband. And so that drops to more like 65%. Wow. So there's a bunch of Americans that either have zero or low internet. And these people are being left behind because, you know, you, I'm sure everyone's had this experience. You're on a video call 
And, you know, one of the participants can't talk. They keep flicking in and out. And they're basically, you know, there's some extent left out of the meeting. It's often related to the fact they don't live in an area of broadband or they, you know, maybe don't have financial resources to pay for it. Right, right. Well, I want to bring Courtney McClooney into the conversation now, Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at Cornell University of Industrial and Labor Relations. Dr. McClooney, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You're a professor of organizational behavior. You've written about how remote work can collapse the boundaries between home and work. Can you talk about the pressures that come with this collapse in boundaries and how they can be felt more acutely by people of color? Yes. So prior to the pandemic, a lot of people struggled with disconnecting from work, and that would often mean still ruminating or thinking about your work day, all the stress sort of spilling over into your home life, or as you prepare to go to work, that commute, as, as Nick was saying, although that is gone, that was actually serving multiple purposes, which is helping to create this psychological separation of work and home. So without the commute, without the physical separation of your work task for people who are allowed to work from home, we are observing a lot more stress, anxiety, and overwork. People are reporting longer work hours now during the pandemic than they were beforehand, uh, partly because, as Nick was saying, the work has become part of your home. We are living at work as opposed to working at home. For people of color, this adds on an additional layer because Oftentimes, people who are allowed to work from home are, are mostly white people in the United States. Uh, people who hold office positions or managerial roles tend to be white males, and people of color underrepresented in these roles. So now that they're working from home, um, the isolation or the numeric underrepresentation is even more stark, especially if they're working mm -hmm. in companies where monitoring is occurring. And, and by monitoring, I mean that some companies are obligating their workers to have their video cameras on throughout the workday. They are requiring more check-ins. And, and a lot of this was for security reasons to make sure that people were actually paying attention to their work. We're seeing this a lot in academia as well with students and how we can monitor their behavior and ensure that they're not violating any ethical codes. Uh, but having people peer into your home through this tiny window that you possibly have crafted and created so that it is Zoom ready, uh, could be quite difficult for people whose culture is considered atypical or abnormal. So people of color uh, oftentimes might feel isolated or different from their coworkers, and so therefore they're, they're more likely to feel stressed in this work from home environment. We're talking about how working from home is reshaping workers' lives. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how working from home is reshaping workers' lives and communities. And you, our listeners, are with us. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786 if you want to join the conversation. Again, 866-733-6786. We'd like to know, can you or will you continue to work from home post-pandemic? Have you made major life choices or investments based 
on this expectation. Do you think remote work on this scale or similar scale is here to say? What do you think longer-term effects could be of this, good or bad? You can also reach us on email, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. With us is Dr. Nicholas Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University, and Dr. Courtney McClooney, assistant professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University of Industrial and Labor Relations. And Courtney McClooney, as we were drilling down more into the impacts on specifically on workers' lives, can you also talk about how these arrangements have either eased or made worse divisions of labor in the home? Yes, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, working from home has sort of collided the traditional second shift that a lot of women have experienced as they become partners in, in the economic uh, model for, for American households today. So a lot of the child rearing, you know, the children being in school, but still being at home, a lot of that is now colliding or competing with women's attention to work. So although a lot of workers have been reporting more hours, women, especially women who are parents, are reporting substantially less hours. And a lot of them have actually left the workforce in mass uh, following this pandemic. So we are seeing that women are still taking on a bulk of the home labor as opposed to male partners and, and males who are parents. Yes, we're seeing this play out. We're, we're seeing some stats and also anecdotal reporting that although things have gotten better, women in opposite sex households still do a great deal more housework and childcare than fathers, and also that they're responsible for more of the health issues related to families as well. Absolutely. Caregiving is constantly seen as a feminine um, trait or, or something that women will take up when it comes to their families. So a lot of the people who are caring for elders, and, and of course, COVID requires strict monitoring of are we wearing our masks? Do you have clean masks? Do we have hand sanitizer? Buying all these household goods, all of that does tend to fall in women's laps, um, which can be quite stressful with managing all the different tasks that are in front of them today. And I was struck by when you were mentioning this window into our world that people have this direct view into and how for so many women, there was this sense that you had to kind of hide the home life stuff, even when you were at the workplace, just to show that, you know, you were just as committed or just as capable of doing whatever work was required of any particular job. I wonder if you want to say any more about just how, how fraught, you know, online interactions can be, Zoom can be, things like that with the kinds of dynamics, race, gender that, that we've been touching on. Absolutely. Like one of the things that you brought up was the stereotypes. Stereotypes are quick snap judgments. And in this really tiny window that we have into people's lives, it is easier for stereotypes to emerge. So any sort of assumptions we have about a woman's ability to take care of her home or to take care of her children or how committed she is to work if her child is interrupting her during meetings, all of that can spill over into stereotypes of how committed she is to work. And with people of color, if they are not looking professional, like how who is allowed to dress casually in this virtual Zoom environment without having stereotypes being attributed to them and their professionalism, all of that are things that women and people of color will have to consider in this new remote from, work from home environment. 
Well, we've, we're getting some responses from listeners. Lori tweets, regarding working from home, I'm no longer commuting 450 miles per week. Not only is this a savings on gas, wear and tear on my car, but I have an additional two hours of my day for personal time and I'm eating healthier. Christine writes, long before COVID, I've worked from home. It's pretty much perfect for me. People won't want to go back and companies realize they don't have to spend lots of money on expensive office space. It's definitely here to stay. Jonathan writes, please comment on the impact of working at home long term on service jobs in food service, coffee shops. As more people work from home, there would be less demand on the businesses that support the on-site workforce. I'm glad Jonathan asks that because I'd like to bring Allison Arieff into the conversation. Allison Arieff is senior editor for City Monitor, an urban policy news site. Allison Arieff, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jonathan's comment reminds me of a piece that you wrote about how large tech quarters, for example, the fact that working from home could have, has had devastating effects on some workers like shuttle drivers, maintenance and cleaning and food service staff who keep the campuses running. And, and that's just a snapshot of broader potential implications in cities, as Jonathan writes, that, that provide support to on-site workforces. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing there? Sure. I mean, there's uh, this really inter interesting concept that uh, the economist Enrico Moretti came up with uh, about the job multiplier that sort of for every job created in tech, there were something like, let's say four to eight jobs created from that, uh, a cleaner, a shuttle driver, a nanny, uh, someone who prepares food at lunchtime. So all of those jobs that were created from that multiplier effect have essentially been eliminated, right? Because either people, uh, they're not traveling to their workplace or they might even not have the disposable income to pay for all of those things. So we're th this new reality is really gonna necessitate a rethinking of the service industry in many ways. And I think we're only beginning to figure out what that looks like. Well, what about in terms of the way that it will change the the environments that we're in? I'm struck by this comment from Noel, who tweets, commuting by car is bad for the environment. Also, people who bought houses for far from work clogged up highways, commuting for hours, which also disrupted family life. This paradigm is unsustainable, but downtowns suffer through a lack of lunchtime crowds of workers for one. What do you think in terms of the way people are planning cities and looking at, I guess, in Noel's case, she brings up potential climate impacts as well? Yeah, no, I mean, in many ways, this is an adjustment that really needed to come on so many levels, right? I mean, the the kind of super commutes that people have been doing, um, even if you're on uh, a Google shuttle, you, you may still be on that shuttle for four hours of your day. So while you might be able to be doing your work, it's still an awful way to live. It's taking so much out of your life. And rather than companies figuring out how to sort of improve land use by sort of not look, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is it, we're overdue for a jobs housing balance. There, there should be much more thought given to how far we work, uh, how far we live from where we work. Uh, the Bay Area has continuously uh, been unable to build the amount of housing that it needs to, which has forced a lot of these housing decisions. It also has failed to invest in transit, which is why all these tech companies had to start their own transportation departments to get people from, 
from where they live to where they work. So the absolute best case scenario that we could see right now, I think, is more sort of a hybrid model of maybe people go in, as people really seem to be claiming that they want to, they go in one to three days a week and then work from home the other days. Uh, once they get there, I think we'll be seeing a real difference in the way offices are laid out. It's interesting to me how cyclical these things are, though. You know, there was a time when we were all going to be working from home. Then there was a time when no one was allowed to work from home. And, and so it does kind of go back and forth. But I do really, truly hope that this moment is a time for us all to really seriously rethink the way our land and transportation decisions have been made. Uh, it's been it's had mostly negative impacts for most people involved, especially those with super commutes, especially those people in the service industries who were say responsible for driving those shuttles or needing to be somewhere that necessitated a two or three hour commute in the morning. Again, Alison Arieff is senior editor at City Monitor, an urban policy news site. We're also joined by Courtney McClooney, assistant professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations, and Nicholas Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford University, senior fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. And you, our listeners, if you'd like to share what kinds of changes you've experienced with this work from home shift, whether you are someone who works from home themselves or someone who's been deeply affected by it. Uh, do you, if you do work from home, do you plan to continue and think you will have that opportunity and have even made major life changes uh, based on that expectation? Do you think remote work is here to stay on a similar scale as to what we're seeing now? And if so, what do you think the longer term effects could be? 866-733-6786 is the number. 866-733-6786. Forum at kqed.org is the email address. And you can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Nicholas Bloom, I'm curious, do you have a sense of, or have you done studies on how much spending could shrink in cities as a result of this shift uh, to remote work becoming more permanent? Yeah, there's, there's two effects on cities we see in the data. So one is on spending. Uh, we did estimates, for example, for San Francisco and Manhattan that suggest spending in city centers is going to be down by about 10%. You know, that echoes the, the concerns from Courtney and Allison about what's going to happen to the jobs that are, you know, think of things like Pret-a-Manger, Starbucks and downtown city centers are down. Much of that drop uh, we find is from office workers who are now going to work from home a couple of days a week. And if you look in the data, we asked them, actually, they spend uh, a couple of hundred dollars a week on you know food and drink entertainment and retail so a lot of people will be in work you know go out and buy their husband or wife a present at lunchtime and all of that spending is being pulled out of city centers most of it's being reallocated out to the suburbs so it's less clear whether these jobs are going or whether they're just moving out from city centers out to the suburbs and in some sense that's a good thing because city centers are very expensive places to live the the other thing that's very striking in the data on the impact of city centers and i've been working with a student, Ar Armin Ranjani, to look at uh, Zillow pricing data, both on rental and commercial and residential prices. You, you see that property prices in the city centers are dropping pretty rapidly in big cities, and they're going up in the suburbs. So to take San Francisco, central San Francisco rents are down about 20 to 25%, but out in East Bay, North Bay, rents are up. So there's what we call the donut effect. Everyone, uh, you know, if you're only going to have to commute in three days a week, you want to live some of the bit more space because you've got to work from home two days a week. And so a lot of people are moving out from city centers. And 
you know, in many ways, if you if you own an apartment in downtown, that's a problem. But I think in general, it's actually good because it's helping to address some of the affordability crisis of uh, city centers. Alison Arif, would love to get your thoughts on that as well in terms of high wage workers leaving could potentially be beneficial if it proves to lower rents, though the question is the extent to which it will create more opportunity, say, for essential workers to live in the communities where they work. You know, I think we aren't really seeing dramatic cost reductions in housing. And that, again, is a function of the Bay Area's inability to build adequate supply. So I think we would only see the benefit if we began to see the um, necessary investment. I'm not one of those people who thinks that the city is over. Um, I, I do think that there are so many commercial vacancies right now that this could be an opportunity for some maybe non-tech companies enter into the Bay Area to take up space. And uh, San Francisco and other big cities have been very good at regenerating themselves in the past. And I think that even if a lot of companies opt to um, have a good deal of work from home, that I'm very dubious that every worker will still be working remotely or that they will all move to the suburbs. So I think that there'll be a bit of shaking out of things as there are now. Uh, I do think that um, I've spoken with some architects at major firms who are already hearing for company, from companies that are looking to figure out return strategies. Hopefully that looks different. Hopefully we, we keep this um, understanding of the importance of flexibility as we move forward. Um, but I, I, I think that the housing question continues to be one of, of supply and not mm -hmm. just where um, office workers are or aren't. Are you hearing from architects a rethinking of the demand for office space and if that could open the door for more homes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it was up to me, I would abolish all zoning <laughs> requirements in the city and and we'd see what commercial buildings could be used for housing right now. Uh, same with retail. We're really going to be in a period, um, I mean, if you walk down a lot of city streets right now, you see so much storefront retail boarded up. Yes. Um, it's going to take a while for all this to come back. Um, what if we could just start to use, uh, really think about um, what could be converted to housing? And that could really help solve a lot of the housing shortages, you know, that we had now. Let me go to caller Marshall in San Ramon. Hi, Marshall. Hello, how are you doing? I'm well. Um, I'm calling because um, the uh, housing market in the Valley has gone up considerably since everybody's been working at home. Um, I was working in San Ramon. I was planning on buying a house in like Tracy, Patterson, Modesto, Lanthrop area because it's, it's not that far of a commute, but it's still pretty long. But I'm thinking that a lot of the people that are working from home that don't have to commute to the Bay Area like San Jose, and uh, San Francisco, that they're selling their housing out there for high prices. And then since they're working at home, they're buying a, a house in the Valley for an affordable price. And, and, and in return, it's raising the prices out there. So a lot of these blue-collar workers, I'm a union worker, and I make all right money, but it's not enough to afford a house in San Ramon or not even a condo. And the condos out here are like $800,000. And um, it, it's, it's, it's just really disappointing that nothing is being done to to help these blue collar workers that that could have a good life but it's just this difficult marshall thanks for raising that and it 
He's bringing up sort of the donut effect that we just talked about a second ago. But Courtney McClooney, I'm wondering if organizations are thinking about the different types of jobs people have, the ability to be able to do them from home, and what kinds of inequities that that creates, and whether or not they can create some arrangements that help to lessen that inequity. I think there were a couple of things that companies can do. So for companies that have a majority of their workforce working from home, there were some optimism at the beginning of the pandemic on how their limited talent pool that was in the geographic area of some of their companies could be addressed by now hiring people remotely. So for companies based out in Silicon Valley, having a hard time recruiting and retaining Black and Latinx talent because they can't afford to live in Silicon Valley area because the prices are exorbitant with the rent. Uh, they could now think about clustering job hires in cities like Atlanta or other cities around the country where they have a higher concentration of people of color. On the other hand, though, there are a segment of all companies that have low-wage workers. These include your service workers, your maintenance uh, personnel. And now that we're no longer in building. Courtney McClooney. I think your connection dropped out, but uh, but I think we have a sense of, of what you're raising. Nicholas Bloom, wondering if you have anything to add while we uh, work to better Dr. McClooney's connection. Yeah, I mean, adding on and responding to the caller's comment, you're right. This is a problem that we're seeing lots of people fleeing the center of cities and is pushed up prices in the suburb. Uh, as Alison said, I mean, one longer run solution, I think, is rezoning. So it's clear a lot of commercial property is not being used. And you know, some of it may never come back if you think of, for example, gyms and cinemas. So I'm a big fan of trying to relax things to convert some of those into residential. It doesn't always work, but to some extent, a lot of people wouldn't, you know, apartments that are in shopping centers maybe aren't, you know, I, I'm from London. You can probably hear my accent. There's a lot of, you know, very mixed housing there and people like to live near shops. It's a nice place to live as in an apartment. The other thing I think that's a bit ho hopeful is, Post-pandemic, if we look at the fall of this year onwards, I think there'll be some reversion in working from home. So just in our numbers, to give you figures, pre-pandemic, 5% of working days were at home. During the pandemic, it's 50%. So there's been a tenfold increase. Post-pandemic, we're seeing it go back to about 20%. So I think a bunch of people out in the suburbs may move back a bit into city centers and oh. places that some remain, the prices may uh, calm down somewhat. So much major movement. Uh, we'll have more about just how much we've reshaped our lives with the pandemic. Stay with us after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how working from home is reshaping communities and workers' lives, and if this major shift that we've made toward a remote workforce continues after the pandemic at a large scale, how will it affect family dynamics, how employees relate to their jobs and each other and cities? That's what we're exploring this hour. Give us a call, 866-733-6786 if you want to join the conversation. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're talking with Allison 
RAF City, Senior Editor at City Monitor, an urban policy news site. Courtney McClooney, Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations, and Nicholas Bloom, Professor of Economics at Stanford University and Senior Fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Michael writes, the biggest change is the absence of serendipitous running into people. There are no casual lunchtime discussions. It's much harder to resolve issues. My wife resorts to a socially distanced lunch once a week with a colleague to work on a project. Uh, Allison Arya, would love to get your thoughts on this. This is one thing that uh, I have heard as well, just in terms of the vitality of workplaces and even cities as public squares that bring together people that may not normally interact. What could be the loss when you have less of that? Oh, this is huge. And this is probably what I miss the most too. It's like, Maybe you had a little spontaneity in your day. <laughs> Maybe you bumped into someone you hadn't seen for a while. Maybe you talked to someone in your office about an idea um, that, you know, we all know that the interactions on Zoom are, are just quite different. I think it's a tremendous loss. I, I think there's been a lot written about how none of us are meeting new people, for example. I think a lot about, um, I mean, I started a new job this year um, from the computer and my first day of work, I, you know, walked to my office from my bedroom. It's, it's very different. Um, I, I think a lot about um, kind of entry level new workers who never had the office experience and don't really have mentor. It's pretty hard to have a mentor on Zoom. Um, I think people are missing out tremendously. It's not to say there aren't a lot of things wrong with office culture because there are. But um, I think it's absolutely the issue that there's a lot to miss and that it's really important that we try and figure out some semblance of, um, of getting that back. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to go back all the time. Uh, but I, I do think that something massive has been lost. Hmm. Let me go to caller Mary in Southern California. Hi, Mary. Hi. Hi. What's on your mind? Well, I'm a surgeon in Southern California. And... Before COVID, um, we were trying to implement more remote work. Uh, we cover a very large geographic area. Sometimes patients would drive two or three hours to get to the office uh, to be seen for 10 or 15 minutes. And there was a lot of pushback, both from patients and from our colleagues, um, about how you couldn't do that. It wasn't possible. It, it changed things. And, of course, then we were thrust into this like everyone else. And it turns out that it has been an amazing boom for mm. us um, and for our patients. People love it. They're not having to perhaps bring a sick child out um, and travel a long distance and wait in a waiting room. We can do video and uh, video visits. We can do phone visits. Of course, there's some things you have to see and touch in person, but we have been able to replace almost 80% of visits with video and phone visits during this time. And it has forever changed um, the way we'll practice medicine. And I just, I think it's fascinating. Um, I think your whole discussion is fascinating. Um, I also would say, as opposed to what we just heard, this has enlarged my life tremendously. Um, you know, surgeons work a lot of hours. I typically work 60 to 80 hours a week before COVID. Um, turns out surgeons aren't as important during COVID <laughs> as we were <laughs> before. Um, 
But there's lots of other things. You know, I've started taking Duolingo, Duolingo classes, and I now have an entire group of uh, conversational language classes, and I've met people all over the world. I'm attending meetings and conferences all over the world and meeting and talking to people and making relationships that I would not have had time or energy to go do. So I, I, I personally have really found this fascinating and wonderful and very exciting. Well, thank you for sharing what it's been like for you. I'm glad it's been such a net positive for you and you're echoing the things that uh, I've heard and also read people talking about how this transition has worked for them. And, and the big question is, is really how this will all shake out for those for whom it is very positive and for people like Greg who writes in and says, I hope working from home will not become the norm. Working in the non-finance, non-tech sector, my rented space is rather small. Working from home has taken over a significant portion of that space and made it difficult to leave work at work at the end of the day. Mihir writes, what do you think of potential burnout in work from home? Because at times it feels like one long continuous work stream without any boundaries, like a commute break or lunch break that we used to have in the pre-pandemic era. Do you agree that the risks, and if yes, do you agree that the risk exists? And if yes, how to best deal with them? Uh, Courtney McClooney, I think we've got your connection back. Do you want to respond yeah. to Mihir's um, concern? Yes, I think their concerns are very valid. Burnout is certainly one of the things we noted because on top of working from home, we're working during a pandemic, a very unclear when it's going to end, the variants keep emerging. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty that can increase anxiety and the amount of work that we are doing despite being in the pandemic is certainly gonna contribute to burnout. And the World Health Organization already listed burnout as an occupational hazard that is plaguing a lot of workplaces today. I can only see that number going up in the next few years, unless we put in some safeguards as organizations and employers. And then Maddie writes, when working from home, I miss the camaraderie of the workplace. There's a certain level of knowledge that comes from just being around and overhearing your teammates. Uh, yeah, I'm struck by, we, we talked about this a little bit, Courtney McClooney, with Allison Arieff, but I'd also love to get your thoughts on this as well. There are concerns about us becoming even more tribalized potentially by just no longer having those sort of unexpected, spontaneous interactions with people that we might not normally or being exposed to other perspectives. And also even uh, Allison was bringing up starting at a workplace uh, where you're starting basically online, you're starting remote and how that complicates things as well. I have a very similar experience to Allison. I onboarded virtually in July here at Cornell and, and it has been quite difficult. There are lots of informal things that I do not know to ask and that people forget to share with me because I haven't yet started you know, my job in person. Um, remote work makes it difficult for people to network and build informal connections and relationships. And we know that those informal, intangible um, interactions is actually what contributes to knowledge sharing in most of our workplaces. So without that random uh, serendipitous encounter, we miss out on lots of information sharing. And unfortunately that can also fall along lines of gender and race where we might cling to people who are similar to us, but they only know usually what we know. And so we're limiting ourselves from connecting with people that we otherwise would not meet, especially people who are in more senior level and executive positions of organizations. Let me bring in James from Bay Point. Hi James, join us. Great. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the biggest issues I see is companies realizing that these positions uh, can be done completely remotely. 
and uh, the jobs being outsourced to other states or overseas. Of course, there's the argument that the position, if it could be outsourced, it already would be. But this might be a huge aha moment for a lot of companies realizing that these uh, positions can be sent elsewhere. Hmm. Nicholas Bloom, what are your thoughts on what James is raising? I think that's a key point. I've heard this a lot from execs, actually. So you're exactly right. The, the thought process is, look, if I have my uh, employer, my team operating remotely five days a week for the last 10 months, and they're doing a pretty good job. There's no reason why some of those jobs couldn't be, say, in Mexico or India. Um, I think it is a big issue. You know, it raises certain, you know, there's, there's good and bad sides of it. I mean, on the bad side, it raises fears that you could see for the service sector what happened to U.S. manufacturing under China post-2002. So China joined the World Trade Organization in 2002, and suddenly there was a huge explosion in trade with the U.S., which is problematic for U.S. manufacturing jobs. You could see some of that in services. On the other hand, it you know it, it opens up lots of uh, cross-state moves, uh, which you know I'm not sure is bad. Coming back to the affordability crisis, you could easily move, live in other parts of California, so you don't need to live so close to the Bay Area and still work at companies. So if you're able to commute in one day a week, you could probably live two, three hours drive away. You'd have one one hellish day a week, but the other four days a week, you get a much better standard of living. So um, yes, I you know if, if there's anything that's true, COVID is is going to generate massive changes in the structure and organization of works and it, it work. And, you know, I, the, the earlier caller on, on medicine is also fascinating. I've heard that a lot from um, COVID has basically led to a bonfire of regulation. So for example, you can get re you can get insurance payments for virtual visits. You can visit people across state borders. And so medicine's had an enormous change in the way that uh, you can operate much of it actually more in a way more effective, but it, it's also challenging for a number of, employers and employees. Well, Francis writes, anytime there's a large change in the way people work, there's opportunity to retrain workers with an emphasis in renewable energy, insufficient childcare workers and teachers, and attrition workers can retrain if society provides the opportunity. Do you think that's going to be a big part of this, Nicholas Bloom, in terms of trying to create an equitable arrangement once our workforce shifts potentially in the ways that you're predicting with work from home? Yes, if you look at labor market data, we are having the biggest flows across industries and across occupations since well, the two previous massive ones were the early 70s after the oil price shock, and in particular, World War II after Pearl Harbor. So just to be clear, after World War II, there was a massive reallocation of workers from peacetime industries to defense. So like the entire of Detroit basically stopped making cars and started making planes. And we're seeing something on a similar scale now. So Jobs are down, but there's also certain sectors like home delivery uh, that are doing incredibly well, certain healthcare front uh, frontline services. As we go through the recovery, that's going to continue and retraining. And as Alison mentioned earlier, and Courtney, you know, discussed kind of rezoning, so allowing firms to be more flexible, so we can make employees retrained and allow, say, you know, there's uh, cinemas that we're, we're really not using anymore. Can we convert that to housing offices? That's going to help the recovery. Uh, accelerate to a place we want to be. Again, we're talking with Nicholas Bloom, professor of economics at Stanford, senior fellow at Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, Courtney McClooney, assistant professor of organizational behavior at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Allison RAF is also with us, senior editor for City Monitor, an urban policy news site. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And let me go to caller Florentina in Berkeley. Hi, Florentina. Hi, good morning. 
thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, what I wanted to say, just listening to this, and I have been following the work from home discussions, and while a lot of it is important to concentrate on our well-being as human beings and our availability for space and economics, um, I do believe that one of the things that seems to be missing from this conversation is how our urban fabric and the urban fabric that we've created uh, has led to these conditions and how we can potentially use this, uh, you know, revolutionary crisis to a certain extent uh, to rethink our urban, urban fabric and encourage more mixed-use development, encourage, uh, you know, less separation of uses. So, for example, you know, somebody shouldn't commute from uh, you know, Vallejo to work in downtown San Francisco if the same type of, uh, you know, amenities are also uh, available in, Valle- in Vallejo. So the idea being that we also need to rethink and look at our urban fabric and how, uh, you know, it led us to what we, we do today and how we can leverage this for a potential more sustainable uh, lifestyle in terms of lowering GHG commutes, uh, uh, GHG emission from commutes and things like that. So uh, I just want to encourage you to potentially include more urban planners in this discussion. And of course, I'm biased as an urban planner myself. (laughs) Well, let me bring (laughs) Alison Aryev back into the conversation, because I think what you're raising is something she can definitely speak to. Alison Aryev, your thoughts on what Florentina is raising. One of the things that I've been wondering about similarly is just when you have a radical reshifting, it it opens doors and opportunities for rethinking in bigger and newer ways. And I know you've been talking about how ultimately you don't think there'll be this giant exodus from the city. But do you see that kind of thinking happening? Or as I guess Florentina puts it, really rethinking the urban fabric? I do. And it's going to have to happen, right? Um, Because as I mentioned, we have a lot of empty real estate right now. I mean, I I sometimes think the biggest innovations can be the most old fashioned ones. And I've been thinking a lot about um, like old shopping streets or even like Italian hill towns where everything is kind of in little um, kind of distinct spaces. I think we're already seeing within cities, um, people are staying in their own neighborhoods. And what if we started thinking about every neighborhood almost having like its own mini central business district, right? If you could have a little bit more shops and cafes scattered across different parts of the city, maybe even sort of satellite, we work style working spaces that maybe people go to an office, but then also maybe they have more sort of neighborhood locations that they can go to. Taking that even further, you know, in, in Tokyo, they have these little things called kobans, which were little kiosks. Sometimes they're for police, sometimes they're like mini shops. Um, if you could almost think of like little deployed community centers that each neighborhood would have one, um, say if older people needed supplies or even social contact, um, how can we really kind of thinking about this about the city as a series of distinct neighborhoods? This is something that's happening globally with the emergence of what's called the 15 minute city. Uh, Paris, for example, and other major cities are, are really thinking about how to design cities so that you never have to travel more than 15 minutes mm-hmm. um, on foot, by bike, by public transport to get to anything you need to do. And I think it's a really valuable way to think about our public realm. Well, Angelica writes, I'm a grandparent who has guardianship of my granddaughter and asked my manager for years if I could work from home from three to five so I didn't have to get after school care. She said no. I'm now working from home just fine. And when I asked if I can work from home after COVID, she said no. We all need to go back into work. Some managers are flexible. Some are not. Let me go to John in San Francisco. Hi, John. Hi there. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. 
and for this important uh, conversation. I have two areas that I don't think you've touched on enough for your guests. Um, one is uh, productivity. Um, I've seen anecdotal information that, well, productivity from working with home has gone up in the beginning, that a lot of businesses are now concerned that it appears to be going down. Hmm. Uh, another one is the lack of promotional opportunities for people working from home. There's considerable evidence that when you work from home, you're ignored on the promotion track. I'll take my answer off here. John, great points. And let me leave with Courtney McClooney having the, the final response on that. Courtney McClooney, we have about a minute left. What I would say to that is you're absolutely right, John, that promotion opportunities, especially during the pandemic, there has been a freeze on a lot of hiring, which included promotions. Unfortunately, that's going to contribute to a lot of the inequality we also saw when it came to representation at levels of leadership. So companies really have to figure out ways to create more clear evaluation processes for workers and figuring out different ways of measuring productivity beyond monitoring instead of thinking about how long a person is working during the day, instead make it more project-based and how much are we um, completing and giving us more flexibility with our time. Hopefully that will help to address productivity and promotability concerns. And just really quick, uh, Dr. McClooney, do you agree with say, Dr. Bloom, that work from home on this scale or a similar scale is likely to stay at some of the stats that he, he cited? I definitely think it's here to stay. We have already been moving towards a more automated, globalized way of connecting as a workforce. So I, I do think that this is going to be one of the processes that needs to stay in place in order for us to continue on that trajectory. Oh, lots to watch and, and monitor. And Dr. Courtney McClooney, Assistant Professor of Organizational Behavior at Cornell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And Nicholas Bloom of Stanford, glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Allison Arieff of City Monitor, thanks so much for joining the conversation. Thank you. And thanks to listeners for sharing their insights and stories. Blanca Torres and Susan Britton produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.